Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Follow our socials and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there. And now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys, He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozella, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sofia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have Songwriters added to the Album of the Year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. We have a special update We have the one and only Evan Bogart. 
We did his interview about five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. Man, I don't know. But it was like the third or fourth interview that we released. And uh, I, think just, it was, I think it might have been the second interview that you did. I think it was like Ricky and then Yeah, me. yeah. That all makes sense. You guys, were like, you guys were like, hey, uh, we're doing a podcast. Can we interview you? Well, because like, sure. the whole point was to interview like our our best friends in the business to talk about it. And I remember saying to you guys, because I tell people this a lot, we didn't um, we didn't release any until we had already recorded twelve. So all the mistakes I made as an interviewer in the first twelve, those were locked. I didn't even know what I was doing. But I also pitched it to you guys, like. Listen, this is just for our community. Yeah. There'll be about 300 people who listen to it tops. Yeah, at the time. And it'll be really good for us to do. And now we have, you know, probably somewhere between six and seven million downloads. Yeah. So um, more than 300 people listened to your episode. Yeah. Uh, enough to fill Staples Center probably about four or five times. Amazing. So, uh, which is now crypto. So there you go. That also tells you when, when we, we did, did it. it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, Rather than doing the full intro, which you can go back and listen to the original about how much I love Evan and how much he changed my life because he was my booking agent when uh, I was in glacier hiking, uh, Evan has gone from being a massive hit songwriter to a massive hit songwriter who does a lot of things that he wasn't doing then. Uh, We were talking right before this interview about how we share an affliction for making hobbies into businesses uh, so let's run down your last five years in about 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I think it's actually, let me, let me just give kudos to like what you guys have done with, with this since then, because I think you guys have really built such an amazing community, songwriting community with this podcast. Um, and I think inspired so many millions of people, songwriters up and coming, already established. Um, it's really been such an amazing, um, such an amazing service for the songwriting community. So congrats on all that. Yeah, thanks. Definitely exceeded uh, expectations, but maybe less so about expectations as much as it created uh, avenues we n- didn't know existed. You know, exceeding expectations are, hey, I think we can do this. Yeah. You know, but we didn't think we didn't. No, but you care united the community. It. I mean, yeah. th- even think about like five years ago. So this was definitely we definitely did this more than five years ago because yeah. five years ago was oh, the it's CR- music and music modernization. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And think about you yeah. were able to rally the community around that. Yeah. Using the podcast and yeah. using the community from the podcast um, as as the as a tool to do that. Yeah, it's re- is, it's really an amazing thing, but it it uh, it works because of the support of of our our closest friends in this. You know, because I think we all wish we would have had these kinds of things. Yeah, growing up. I mean, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about your childhood in your uh, yeah. in your interview, but now since then. Uh, the biopic around your father and his career mm. has come out. Yeah, um, not to go out of order, but talking about the idea of all the people. It's actually that, not out of. It's funny. We actually started working on that, like you know, 2010. Why does it take so long for movies to get made? I don't know. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes, and I guess it just depends what the movie is. I mean, like when we first started working on the movie. Um, well, we, the movie's called Spinning Gold. Spinning so, Gold. So when it's we first a, started working on Spinning Gold, yeah. When we start, first started working on Spinning Gold, which is, uh, like you said, a, a, a biopic about my dad, Neil Bogart, um, who, you know, I guess most famously founded Casablanca Records um, and is 
often credited with bringing disco from the clubs into the mainstream with Donna Summer and the Village People, and but also at Parliament and Kiss, and before that ran Buddha Records, where he signed, you know, the Isley Brothers and Bill Withers and Curtis Mayfield and Gladys Knight and a whole bunch of people, and and um, it's his story. You know, we started working on that in 2010. So crazy, and when we did that it was announced that Justin Timberlake was going to play my dad and Spike Lee was going to direct it. Wow. And neither of them are obviously involved in the movie now. (laughs) But, you know, these twists and turns, you know, Justin was involved and then Spike wasn't involved and then Nick Cassavetes was directing it and then Nick wasn't involved and then Justin put out the Man of the Woods album, is that what it's called or something? Yeah. And then he went on tour and he had this movie with the Woody Allen movie and, and and. Troll. I mean, like, all these things were happening, and it was just kept delayed, delayed, delayed. And then at some point, it was just kind of like I think that there was a mutual deciding to move on from the movie. Justin and you know he had so much stuff going on, he just didn't have time to pay attention to it. And then my brother wanted to cast an unknown instead. And obviously, there was so much success around Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody. He wanted to find somebody from the musical world because my dad was such a showman. And so he ended up uh, casting Jeremy Jordan, who's been so successful on Broadway to play my dad, and, uh, and that's when it really unlocked everything at that point. My brother ended up deciding to direct it himself. Uh, Larry Mark, who is the producer on the movie as well, um, produced like Dream Girls and Jerry Maguire and Terms of Endearment and The Greatest Showman, basically said to my brother, like, no one's going to know how to direct this better than you. You know this story inside and out. You're, you're the most connected to it. You do it. So with my brother as a director and Jeremy playing my dad, we set off to go make it in 2019, finally. And then, um, and then there was this global pandemic, <laughs> which we basically had shot maybe a third of the movie. Oh, wow. And then we thought, oh, but that's it. I, I mean, like, we were so close to making this movie. It's that, like, once it's down, how are you going to get back up? Yeah. Like, who knows when this is going to end? Actor schedules, financing, so many things that come into play. Um, and somehow my brother was able to get everyone online, had to recast a few parts, reshoot some stuff. Um, was everyone was aligned for June 2021 in New York, in, in Jersey. And like, it was like right as That's like the next wave. OG, right yeah. as OG COVID had just died down about six weeks before Delta. Yeah. Like, and somehow nailed it, somehow just hit the bullseye of the, of the space to do it. And we spent the entire month of June. In, uh, in, a, in a massive warehouse in Jersey where they rebuilt all the sets we originally had in Montreal and, um, and shot the movie there and, and actually wrapped it by the end of June just in time. You know, we were all like double masked with shields and like COVID compliance officers. It was like insane. Were you there the whole time? The whole time, yeah. Yeah. So I, so I my role in the movie, even dating back to the original, was I was going to helm the, be the guy who oversaw all the music, obviously, right? That's the, the role I, I play in the Bogart brothers. Um, <clears throat> my other brother, Brad, is a producer on the movie. He he comes mostly from television, but he's a great line producer and and a good and a, just a great overall producer. And um, so it was a all Bogart brothers were working on this, but I was overseeing the music. And in twenty um, in twenty nineteen, when we were going to go make this, I brought in um, I brought in Harvey Mason to to who's like an expert at at these kinds of movies of taking older music and reimagining it and putting new voices on it. So uh, I brought in Harvey and his team for that part of it. Um, <clears throat> I brought in Harvey and his team for that part of it. And then there were um, 
there was a whole aspect of, of original music. I wanted to make sure there were some original songs, which was, we were going to do a ed- big end title song. It was actually way back in 2011 or so, we started thinking about doing a musical around it. And we're playing around with some ideas. And one of the ideas we had kind of noodled with ended up forming itself into the, this end title song in the movie, which is a big music, Broadway musical number with Jeremy and the whole cast. We brought in like um, a choreographer from Moulin Rouge and she choreographed the whole movie. She did all the uh, for Broadway, Broadway version of Moulin Rouge. She choreographed the whole, all, the, all the movements in the movie and her sister, who's in the cast of Hamilton, they choreographed all the stuff together and uh, including the end, this end performance. But then the other, so I wrote this original song um, ended up starting it, the idea with Lindy and Eman back in the day, and then finishing it with with uh, Harvey and Jeremy. Crazy on set, basically on set. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was that my dad was an artist signed to Portrait Portrait Records. I didn't uh, know that. And that was, huh. and and he uh, he had a song that was like charted like top thirty, and my oh. grandma called him a has been that never was. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, he you know, obviously became successful later. Yeah. Um, and he had this song that like was like a you know call on the radio station, like battle of the songs. And, it, and one week it beat Elvis, and that was like the biggest achievement at that time in his career. It was like a big achievement. He beat Elvis on the Collins. Mike, by the way, at the end of your life, you could also be like, this was the biggest achievement of my life is that I beat Elvis on a radio call-in. What? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the guy did As a million up, things that were but, incredible. Yeah, but growing up in, in the Brooklyn Projects. Like, that's genuinely one of the genuinely, things you could possibly do. And probably be- more successful than anybody else growing yeah. up in his four-block yeah. radius, right? Yeah. Like, he grew up in the Projects and, totally. like, Brooklyn. And, like, to actually have a song out on a record label that beats Elvis on a call-in show yeah. was, like, he's the god of the whole yeah. block. four blocks, right? <laughs> four blocks. Um, but um, he... Uh, Anyway, long and short of it, uh, we were listening to that song, a song called Bobby, that my dad put out under the name Neil Scott. And um, it sucks. Huh. It's like not good. It's like, it's like a Frankie Valley D, D ripoff yeah. song. Yeah. And we were like, how are we going to get the audience to believe that this song beat Elvis? And so I decided I would write him a new song. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I wrote a brand new song called Cherry on Top. Yeah. Which he perform with Jeremy's character yeah. performs, and that's the song that beats Elvis, um, and it's much more believable in the movie. Um, but it was fun to be able to go. You know what? Like if I had been a songwriter back then, what song would I have written for my dad? Yeah, which is kind of like a fun experiment. Did it make you? You know, uh, brothers going through this. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of catharsis. I know you've had to speak about a lot of this yeah, yeah. too. Um, in the writing process, when you think of writing for your dad, did you feel more connected to him or differently connected than you? You know, this, I don't think of your relationship with your dad around songs as much as records. Mm. Do you know what I mean? When I think of the trajectory of somebody who's a record exec, it's another thing than being the artist. That's an interesting relationship when you're serving him with the dialogue. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think for me the whole experience was cathartic for two reasons. One was I got to know more about my dad. I was four when he died. You know, he died when he was thirty nine years old, at the top of his game, and I don't remember him at all. I mean, I have like three memories. I think two are made up, and one I think is real, but whatever. And um, and so I got to know more about him as a person. 
from interviews with people, from getting to know, to hearing the stories of family members that I didn't hear growing up. Like, you know, they protect you when you're a kid. They don't tell you like the real stuff, right? Um, the other part of being cathartic was actually like this movie had been go- had been something that had been talked about in our family, and that was a like kind of like a pressure stress point for a long time, even before 2010. Like since I was a kid, like we should yeah, make a movie about my dad. Movie. Yeah, 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 and like it's dominated conversations for so long. It was kind of like I was excited to have it done for to, to be done with it. So like my family can move on from it. In Could some you move regard. on from it? Yeah, yeah, totally. I've moved on from it. There's no sequel. <laughs> I'm the, the sequel. story of you. <laughs> well, okay, so I mean, this was the the one note I had was to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, look, you, you I, know, I, I always say I wouldn't have gotten into the music industry without my dad, and people think, well, that makes sense because your dad was so big in the music industry, and actually, you know, from from tons of self reflection over the years, I probably went into the music industry to feel closer to him because I didn't know him. Not, I think at one at some point I probably was just like, this is all I'm going to do because this is the, my way to get close to my dad or whatever, you know, feeling of my dad was to kind of follow in his footsteps, quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, and maybe I, early on in my career, as discussed in previous episodes, probably followed that too too much, too letter, too much yeah. of the letter. Um, but um, but I've definitely, you know, at some point, and I think. Um, probably somewhere either around SOS or Halo, uh, split and created my own line yeah. <laughs> of, of, uh, of things where I wasn't necessarily trying to be like my dad and I had done things that he never did and started living my life for myself. Um, and, but I, you know, I mean, I think... How did this experience inform how to be a father? Well, that's, it's actually super interesting. Like, I... Um, when Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I finished shooting the movie was about four months after Ezra was born. And Ezra was there in, in, in Jersey with, with ZZ during the whole June. They came for the month of June or whatever. And I went away on vacation for like a week. And I came back from vacation and I actually went to uh, see like a medical dietitian. And it ended up losing within nine months close to 100 pounds, which I've mostly kept off since then. What it informed me about being a father is that I want to be one, that I want to be around for my son. I wanted to be healthy and I wanted to not, I wanted to, you know, I mean, like, I just didn't want there to be a chance that, that I was doing something where I was going to take myself away from Ezra, you know? And what I thought about was, and like, oh my God, we get so deep on these things. What I thought about was, um, all of the memories I have, even now to this day, Ezra's like two and a half almost, right? And I like spend all this time with him and I think, oh, my, da- I, my dad was alive when I was two and a half. I don't remember any of that. 
And my dad has all these incredible memories of me or had these incredible memories of me, just like I do right now of Ezra, but I don't remember any of it, right? I need to be there to like have shared experiences with him. Like he's definitely sharing experiences with me right now, but like he won't remember any of this, videos and photos and things. But like, I wanna, I wanna grow old with him. And my dad didn't get a chance to do that. And I'm not saying he did that because he was overweight or anything, but you know, he lived a, he lived an excessive lifestyle. You know, how did um, he pass again? Huh? How did he die? Cancer. Yeah. I actually don't think it was the drugs that killed him, yeah. and I don't think it was the partying that killed him. I think, um, I think he supposedly he drank like 20 tabs a day, like just non. <laughs> that, that, that's just that's just. Like nonstop, just drinking tap. It was the first in seventies and eighties, just yeah, just being stupid and in drinking. Like everybody drank soda and drank. Yeah, yeah, like, but like, but yeah, but like tab. Like, the tab what, was the first like yeah, diet yeah. soda, right? Yeah, like right. it was the first sugar, you know, sugar yeah, substitute yeah. soda. And you know, the shit they were using back then was like all chemicals yeah. and cancer causing whatever. Yeah. I think it was probably that. Wow, like they gave him the cancer. I mean, like crazy. I mean, for what could be anything that gave him the cancer, but I think. I think um, when you hear someone is drinking that much tab yeah, <laughs> on yeah. a daily basis, you're thinking like maybe. Well, you talk to people all the time. I mean, my 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 dad's main uh, uh, liquid source is Diet Coke still, and you're like, yeah. dude, fucking just drink anything else, water. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah, just sometimes anything else, yeah. please. But yeah, I mean, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, but do you think? Yeah. Are the Bogart brothers going to make more movies now? Yeah, we just we just wrapped our second movie. Oh, you did? Yeah, I didn't know about this. Yeah, what's the second movie? It's a it's a it's a musical that I had been writing a pop musical that I've been writing since 2015, uh-huh. and we put it on pause. Uh-huh. Originally, it was sold as a TV show. Uh-huh. To uh, I don't know, it was ABC or NBC or something, and then like the head people got canned, and then they took like a year to get it back, and then they were about to resell it, and then some other executive team got canned, and then Spinning Gold got funded, and so all just the focus shifted to that, and I thought, oh, that'll never get made. What and was it? What's it called? It's called Verona. Okay. So it is. It's it's basically Romeo and Juliet. It's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but it's it's original pop musical. Um, so it's all, you right all all original songs, a whole. I get a whole smattering of yeah, people. Yeah, it. I mean, it started with started in the E Man days, so a lot of E Man. Andrew Goldstein yeah. is, on, is on a million songs. Chelsea Lena, um, Cameron Forbes, um, like a whole crew. That whole crew of you know people that were signed to me and E Man or to E Man back then, and then the rest of it was written late since then by me and Justin Gray, who I write a lot of my sync stuff with. You and he's uh, my composing partner. You know, in a industry when we were talking about, you know, the affliction of making hobbies into <laughs> businesses, um, you know, part of the problem with that is not with you, but the perception of somebody who's, you know, oh, he's making movies now. Oh, he's 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 running a publishing company now. Oh, he's he's doing the Grammys now. But it's music. Oh, and, it's oh, song based. You do, you do not have to explain this. No, to no, me. no. But I, it's like it's but, this but, weird do you thing. Remember, where you're like, I remember no, on the first still, episode. You, on the first episode, you said yeah. it on our episode back in the day, and I still rings true, right? If you're yeah. not writing songs, the house of cards falls, right? Yeah. And so for me, like Verona 
is an extension of me writing songs. That's where I derive pleasure in writing now, is when I can look at an entire project and go, okay, cool. These seven songs we're keeping from back in the day, I need to write six more songs based on the script. My brothers turned this TV show into a feature film. The guy who funded Spinning Gold is gonna fund this movie. We're shooting it in Italy, in Verona, or in around Verona, Northern Italy. And um, it needs these other six songs, right? And I'm like, I'm, that's, that excites me as a songwriter to go in there and complete this vision of this story and then getting the chance to go and executive music produce the second thing that I did after Spinning Gold and be able to go, okay, cool. Who's my music team? Who's my audio team? How, who's my, who are the choreographers? How am I going to work with them? Like learning a whole new skill set, right? And I've now learned how to basically do two movies where I've, from soup to nuts, created the music from, the, from all the way to the beginning to all the way to the end and have to work with an audio team, a sound team, a producer team, an editing team, a sound editing team, sound mixers, choreography, everything, on set, studio on set, cutting, cutting, cutting artists, writing, rewriting things on the fly. Like, that's like an exciting, I mean, dude, how long have we been doing this for, right? Like, to be able to create a new skill yeah. And have new experiences. That's what I'm. That's what I love. And I'm not not writing. That's where I'm writing. I'm taking my skill as a songwriter and applying it to doing new and exciting. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital, streaming, sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844 844- for all music. That's right. It's 844 for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And the Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys. He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozella, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sophia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have songwriters added to the album of the year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters. 
shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels, from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. Thanks. Yeah, the more I work in, in, in uh, theater and, I've, and I have a couple shows doing executive music producing for TV shows and you get involved in... Uh, one of the best parts of it is that there are very few A&R people between you and the end. There are people who have notes and there are people who want to make it better. But in the end, like a lot of those people res- respect your lane. Yeah, yeah they, they turn, they say, you're, the, you're the music you're the, guy. You're the, you're you're the, the music, music guy. guy. How many and times then, do you hear that, right? Yeah. Well, you're the music guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, they, and you end up, they, they just sort of, if you're cast in that role yeah. of being an executive music producer yeah. and you're writing songs for something, it's not the same thing as when you write a song, you send it in. They're like, I don't hear my artist on it. Like, you, you're the you're the A and R guy. With all due respect, just trust me. Just send it to the yeah. the artist. Yeah. I promise you that if yeah. they sang it, they would sound great on them. Yeah, that's different than when you walk in and and you're like, here's the song, and you could have whatever demo of it, and the and the actor is. So excited to sing an Evan Bogart song, sure, because they've sung some really bad songs, yeah, you know, before, and they get an opportunity to sing from one of the greats, and it's a whole other experience. And then they also sound really good, doing and they it. sound so good. They're and like, they're, I mean, wow, I this is the best I've ever sounded. My my <laughs> anecdote about theater is always that the the worst dancer in, in New York can sight read music. Sure. So you know, yeah. there's like a respect for music that runs deep yeah. in in other fields. There's a huge difference in writing for Spinning Gold, which is, you know, a, a, a an homage to a time, and it's mm-hmm. making something present and real now. There's a huge difference between that and narrative music and a musical, where the song huge. has to drive the story and yeah. move it forward. Yeah. There has to be intention, obstacles, tactics. And, there has to be and there's dramatic. so much, so much conversation before you even go in and write the song to really understand yeah. where to, where to, like what you're trying to convey. What's, why? Why? Uh. What's what emotion? What narrative? Like all, everything. You have to understand Is what's, it go- good? what's going. Is the movie good? Yeah, objectively, I think it's good. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, when does it when, when does it come out? Um, they're slating it right now for Valentine's Day, twenty twenty four. Wow, so that's actually pretty fast to wrap, and then oh, it's already been edited and everything. When you say wrap, uh, it's like done. Oh yeah, we're, we're, right now we're in post. Oh, so post, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, Justin and I are scoring it as well. So we're Got it. we're doing that right now as well. We scored Justin and I scored Spinning Gold. How much are you writing in the way that you used to write? How much you? How many times are you doing sessions in a in a week? Depends on the week. Yeah, fair. Real. Sometimes none. Uh-huh. Sometimes the whole week. Yeah. Just depends what project I'm working on or what I get, what I want to be working on or what I get called in to do. Should songwriters get paid? Yeah. You mean like in general? Yeah, uh, yeah. songwriters should definitely get paid. You mean should songwriting be a free thing that people do for free? I mean, some people think so. Not anybody on this podcast. <laughs> Are you talking but, about upfront money? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I think Still songwriters should get upfront money too. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think in general, should songwriters get royalties? Yeah, yes, songwriters should get royalties yeah, also. That would be crazy. Um, do you? Uh, <laughs> I, already, um, I already have one volunteer job. That's the, that's the recording academy. I don't need another one. Okay, so um, <laughs> let's go. Let's jump to that. So. Uh, 
last time both of us were pretty opinionated on how songwriters should get paid. Sure. And uh, felt like we could do some some things to support songwriters, thus, you know, starting things like this podcast and the conversations we've had yeah. a million times with Busby at the time and yeah. some of our peers that were really hustling, um, I'd like to think with us and are yeah. still with us in mm-hmm. ways. But um uh, you then became the president of the LA chapter. You're a trustee for the Grammys. You're running the songwriter wing of the Grammys or president of it. Is that chair, the chair, chair, whatever that, uh, well, well, I mean, okay. So that job, uh, <laughs> you know, you go and you say that I, I always, you know, I talk about silos in my career. Yeah. And when I talk about advocacy, I yeah. have that as a silo. Yeah. You know, it's important for me to do. Yeah. Uh, it's good for the community, um, and sometimes you're like, "Wow, I just spent three months working on this project that yeah. was good for the for the culture mm-hmm. and for my community." And um, is you know objectively underappreciated for how much work you've had to put into it. I appreciate the work you've done for us, and I think we should acknowledge the fact that songwriters. Are uh, winning awards that they were never winning before because you exist in this community, and uh, you know you. you can post anything you want about this is important for your livelihood. Stand up for songwriters in the community, and it's often crickets. And you go and say this will give songwriters a thirty-three point three percent better chance to win a Grammy, and the shit lights up. Like what you are doing for your Grammys are emotionally, as em- have been emotionally more important to most writers than some of the stuff that you've done that have actually affected their wallet. Like, yeah, and, and that's the truth. Like songwriters are that vain. That we need the appreciation, and we need it from the source, the Grammys. And here you are, our beacon of light in that community. First of all, I applaud you for that. And second of all, uh, why are you doing this? <laughs> uh, thank you. And I mean, for everything that you just said. I mean, um, look. I mean, to, so- songwriters being vain in that regard. I mean, that's the reason that you know Spotify has notable. And you know, thing Amazon sponsors the Ivor Novellos. You know, like it's it's a little bit of like I thought it was Apple or Apple. It was Apple. Oh, it was Apple now. Yeah, it's Amazon. Yeah, but um, it's kind of like um, yeah. Look over here. Look over here. (laughs) Yeah, but also just kind of like like people. Sometimes people have if they have the opportunity, they they end up like voting against their own interests. You know, depending on like the great, like the bigger interests, I, I see that a lot. In, and um, <clears throat> I think uh, I think that's complicated. I think song this being a songwriter is complicated because most songwriters don't have a brand or a strategy or the right team in place supporting them. And I feel I feel bad. Like I feel like that's why I do what I do. Like I feel like there's not enough mentors to go around for the amount of songwriters that there are. And there's not a lot, not enough people who actually know what they're talking about. You know, um, you you are um, you're you're rare in that in that regard. I mean, you put me on to certain ways that I should get paid that I didn't know about. You know, and I think there are a lot of songwriters who don't understand their business. 
still. They don't understand how to conduct their business. They don't understand what's fair. They don't understand what people should be getting. They don't understand how to, how to deal with other, other people. They don't understand how to act in sessions. There's no like best practices manual that goes out to songwriters when you become a songwriter. Going back to like your, uh, your idea of rookie camp, you know, from back yeah. in the day, right? There is no, there, that doesn't exist, right? And, and I think, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's on us. It's on people like us who actually care to actually spe- devote our time to do that. You know, I, I, I jokingly say this because obviously there's, it's, there's, there's more important things than songwriting, but like I always say, like the, the Recording Academy is my, is like my soup kitchen, right? Like where do I donate, volunteer my charitable time, right? Um, and for me, I think I could make the biggest difference advocating for songwriters and on getting, getting songwriters the, the, the help they need. And, and advocacy um, isn't, just about, isn't just about getting paid, right? I mean, advocating for songwriters is for education, advocating for healthcare, advocating for mental wellness programs, advocating for mentorship. Um, and so through the wing, we're able to do all that. Like I'm able to do more because of the wing than I was just as a songwriter who was the president of LA chapter who then became the tr- a trustee, which I just got reelected. So I'll, I'll be a trustee for two more years. Um, and I've served on the advocacy committee, the national advocacy committee for the recording academy. But I feel like through the wing, we're able to create more, more opportunity for people. Um, and we're certainly not the only ones doing it. We're, we work with all of the songwriter organizations. We're not against them we're not like our own we're not competing like we work with sona we work with nmpa now we work with nsai we work with everybody right like we're we're like how can we collaborate to create a better life for songwriters and composers like that's literally is is what we're trying to do one of the easy ways to do that like you said is through recognition at the grammys because the everybody you know the grammys are revered so we're able to create new new categories you know songwriter of the year was something that that you know we've been talking about forever that's now a reality right um and um there were other ones right like uh i mean adding songwriters to album of the year was imperative adding adding songwriters to album of the year was was the beginning of that right like that's how that started the ball rolling right we did that it it didn't exist when we had that interview no, it didn't. That's so crazy. Oh, that's crazy. That is like, crazy. So, Ro- so, Ro- so Ross and I wrote this proposal to add songwriters to Album of the Year, which in the history of the Grammys, they, they hadn't been. Um, that, um, that happened, and James Fauntleroy is the Jeopardy, Jeopardy question of who was the first yeah. songwriter to win an Album of the Year Grammy, who is James Fauntleroy. Um, but um, that started the conversation, you know, and I think when, <clears throat> when Harvey became chair of the trustees, and uh, for the brief moment that Deborah served as CEO, the wing was became an immediate priority. Harvey's like, let's get the wing, let's do it. This is where Harvey's a, a collaborator for both of us, and is uh, it's it's amazing to have an ally part of the Grammys like that in that position. And, I mean, you can't understate how important it is to have that. Then, you know. Uh, some of the other people will say when we first started in the industry that we're running the Grammys did not care about songwriters in the least. Um, uh, not also because for the 55 years before, no one cared. So this, right. a lot of it was like, why were we changing something that works <clears throat> out great? And you're, you're like, well, it works out great yeah. for not the songwriters. You know, I mean, I, I still think in the end, 
you know, I don't think songwriters deserve every award. Um, there's, there's still, uh, there's still work to do. There's still work to do. There's still work to do. And we, and we know that. Yeah. And, and because of the wing, we're able to do that. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just Harvey becoming chair. Right. Um, the Grammy set out, uh, God, maybe seven years ago, at least five, I think longer, seven years ago to start doing requalifications in a different way where they started people making people requalify yeah. and trying to weed out the hobbyists yeah. as members. So they've been refreshing their membership. They also um, made a very deliberate um, approach to refreshing the board of trustees and each chapter board and really try to create more diversity, not yeah. only just from like uh, gender parity or ethnicity, but also from like genre and craft and age and and you know mm-hmm. trying to create more of a of a well rounded uh, brain trust on the chapter level and on the national level, and so that combined with Harvey as the chair, who's now the CEO, you know having a songwriter producer CEO is also awesome, um, and all of that combined gave us an opening to create the wing. And the idea was, how do we get Songwriter of the Year? And Harvey was like, let's get the wing up. Once the wing is up, let's focus on Songwriter of the Year. Yeah. So we, we, we were just like, let's go build the wing. Let's annou- we had like six months like before the Grammys. We were going to have Trevor Noah announce it at the Grammys. We were like, let's just go. Like head down, put, you know, get a bunch of honorary you know, legends to, to, to launch it with, put together a leadership council. Like, let's just go. Yeah. Right? And so... Harvey always talks about having a bias to action, and that was that was kind of our inspiration behind it. We did that, and then immediately in the first leadership council meeting, I was like, priority number one, let's start writing Songwriter of the Year proposal. You know what the Songwriter <laughs> Wing should do? Um, I I still think, and this is not this is this is because what I think the definition of a songwriter is has changed so much, mm. and it continues to evolve. Yeah, is uh, if there was some sort of special award that still goes to like somebody in the business who doesn't qualify for any of these awards, like there are so many songwriters that you know help create uh, music cares, being involved in music cares that probably do like incredible yeah. work and in donating their time to hospitals and doing stuff like that. There's, you know, like an impact, maybe an like, advocate, like, like an, an impact, impact award, or an yeah. advocacy award of yeah. some sort. There's so many. That's a good you know, idea. There, I mean, there's some people they, they that added are, the, this last year. They added the best song for social change. That's a that's a good a start. Thing. It's, it's a, a good, good start. start. Yeah. I just think there's some like I I keep talking about. You know, we were talking about the Songwriter Hall of Fame before this, and you know, there's just the definition of what a songwriter is continues to evolve in an era where uh, songwriters often have to do a lot of things to stay relevant, or because they have your personality and not the personality of you know, uh, you know, Max. Well, Max has now multitasked, but we know a lot of people who primarily just have been songwriters and songwriters their whole life. They don't enjoy doing the other stuff, so they don't do the other things. They're not spending the time you're spending at the Grammys. Um, but to me, I don't think of your achievements with the Grammys should be looked as anything other than a massive diamond album. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a songwriter also. Sure. And that's a massive success. So uh, again, thanking you for your service. Yeah, of course. Um, the do you feel like the advocacy stuff that you do with the Grammys have has that affected 
any of your songwriter positively or negatively? Any of who? You, has it has that success affected your songwriting in any way? It it positive like it not you know does does the time you spend away from sessions does it it slow down your brain in the songwriting? You know when you're writing with that kid who just got signed to Atlantic, yeah, you know which is like half of our emails are like, hey, we got, <laughs> you know. When you go into that to that room and you're writing with that songwriter who just got signed to Atlantic, yeah. My question is like, all the stuff you've done outside of it has that positively or negatively affected either your ability to get in the room or I have what such you a do crazy in the answer room. to that. Please, if I was in the room with a kid who just got signed to Atlantic, I'd be thinking to myself, why am I wasting my time? I should be working on other stuff that I think would change, be more that would actually make a greater impact in the world. Yeah, not just in the world, just for me, even mm. like. If I'm not I'm, to sing out Atlantic, it could be no, no, no. Level. I'm just I'm yeah, just using it as an example, right? Yeah. Like, like uh, when people pitch me new artists to go in with, it has to be something that just knocks my socks off. I just have to be blown away by it and so inspired by it to make me at this point want to even do it. Yeah, I just I'm just I just there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's just not that great. Well, also happens when you start signing stuff where you're like, if you're one of the mentors, yeah. like, I would prefer to write with my writers I wanna, or I my producers. Much rather, I would much than, rather. I have, artists, yeah. I have artists that are signed to, to my label. I have, I have writers the, that are what, signed to my publishing label, company. What's the label compared? So let's get into Seeker. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, let's finish on Seeker. What's the label? Is that also through Seeker? Yeah, no. it's all through Seeker. Oh, it's all through Okay, yeah, so... Yeah. You, you're, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Everyone, uh, I, I had this. I played golf with this guy. Forget his name, and I'm so I'm embarrassed about this. But he used to run EMI Publishing, the the catalog after the sale. So he owned, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. And I'm I'm golfing with this guy, and this is probably six years ago or so. And I and and I said, do you think people should sell their catalogs? Um, because we, you know, we don't know what Spotify is going to pay. Maybe the songwriters are going to lose everything. Should we sell our catalogs? And he said, "Oh, you're looking at it all wrong. Always sell your catalog when interest rates are low. Mm. This is before the interest rates have dropped." <laughs> right. He said, "You will see everything gets inflated." I was like, "Wow, that's incredible." So I'm watching the interest rates starting to go down, and sure enough, I call my attorney and I'm like, "Hey." I know we would never normally talk about this, but yeah. is this something that we should look into? Like yeah. it's starting to bubble up. People are starting to sell some stuff. And I was like, oh, interesting. Cause like even just going through the conversation was just fascinating. Yeah. And there's this giant gold rush for like what a copyright is and why look. The stats being seventy percent of of Spotify is that's consumed uh, streams that are consumed are is existing catalog. You know, thirty percent is new music. So all the hustle that you're fighting for in putting out new music is battling in that little space of the thirty percent. Right. You know, and here you are, like, also in part of this catalog acquisition world where yeah. you're like, oh. This is maybe the future. If you're talking about the money ball part of the music industry, that's an interesting way to put out. This, it, this for the last six years has been the money ball part of the music industry. I wouldn't even say six. Well, 
I mean, it got. I mean, it the, got out of control. The last twenty 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 one was yeah, like yeah. the last like, two three yeah, years in, yeah. in particular. But since I had that conversation with that guy, yeah, where I was like, oh, right, sure, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so now that now that the cat's out of the bag and people know what's happening, <laughs> yeah, now it's like how does it's like Evan everyone's Bogart mom, everyone's then, mom's like, oh, yeah. are you selling your catalog? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like I read about it in the New York Times yesterday. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, what what happened? Yeah. What what happened? Um, all right. It was it was simple. So I think going into I think really 2018, I had been writing full time. Um, f- at that point for like 13 years, like not like pretty, not pretty nonstop. And, um, I kind of made this deliberate, like, I'm going to reduce the amount of sessions I do and really just say yes to the things I love, which is something that I preached for a long time for people, but I wasn't, I wasn't really doing it. I was still saying yes to certain things, right? Cause you have this like feeling this of like, you know, survival, Right, you gotta stay relevant. You gotta stay sur- survival, right? And uh, and I, uh, I, but I started slimming them down, and I started getting more more cuts. It was funny in twenty. I think it was 2018, um, Cobalt had said, "You are the only writer here who who had a single f- from seven different genres this year," <laughs> which I felt like was complimentary because I love so much, so many different kinds of music. But also, my like cut rate was up. None of them were like gangbusters, but it was funny to look at. It was like I had a rap single and I had an R&B single and a pop single and a dance single and a country single and a rock single. You know, it was like all these amazing uh, songs that were out from all these artists, you know, that were, that were known, well-known, up-and-coming, whatever, but they were all done in, in probably a tenth of the amount of sessions that I had been doing on, mm. on, a year, on a yearly basis. And I was like, oh, this is so great. Like, this gives me an opportunity to really focus on, on some other things. We're about to start going into spinning gold. I can, like, focus on that. And going into 2019, I was like, man, I really want to, I really want to um, do something else. I just felt unfulfilled doing what I had done before. And I said to, to Larry, who's you know, still my manager after all this time, and I said, I said, Larry, I said, dude, I'm fucking bored, man. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to only work on the things that I love. And then I just want to figure out how to, how to take my brand of mentoring and publishing. And I want to try to scale that up somehow. I want to just do it in a bigger way. I want to affect more people. I love everything. You know, I was coming at the, to the end of a almost decade relationship working with Ricky and ZZ. You know, we, I'd signed them both in 2010. Um, and, um, and, you know, over the, you know, over the last nine years, you know, everyone from MKTO to Harlow to all these people like that I've dipped in and out of, you know, I publish them, I'm the the label, I manage them, whatever it was, you know, I get in where I fit in kind of thing while I'm full-time songwriter. And I just didn't, I just was kind of like overdoing the same old, same old. I was thinking about coming into this decade and thinking, am I just going to keep doing this? Like, what else is there? You know, and I was about to start doing this movie and I needed time to do that. And so um, I did two things. I, I decided that um, I was going to sell a catalog, which I never sold or bought or whatever. I'd never done that before. Um, I actually used your lawyer. <laughs> um, and um, I, sold, I sold a catalog that I, it wasn't my catalog, I sold a catalog. A, substantial catalog that I owned a piece of. 
um, and gave myself the opportunity to kind of explore new things, to put some money away, to not have to write songs, to only write songs if I wanted to, but to give myself an opportunity to explore new things. And I met with a ton of people and I was trying to figure out what was the next chapter. Was I going to go inside? There was convers- I had conversations with publishing companies about maybe going inside and like setting up like a, an A&R section where like I took songwriters that were like, could be branded and like cook them under my wing and like work with their teams and like became like a different service of like a major publisher or like just different conversations. And like some of them progressed pretty far. And in the middle of that conversation, I got introduced to uh, an investment firm out of the UK. And I was really reluctant to meeting, meeting with them because at the time there was probably like a dozen people, like the, like the hypnosis thing had started, right? Like people were talking. I had just gone through a catalog sale to Anthem, not to hypnosis. And um, there, were, there were headlines starting to be made, but it wasn't like what it became. And at the time, it was like hypnosis and shamrock and primary wave and maybe reservoir and tempo and like a few other companies. But the majors weren't buying catalogs at the time, right? Um, and there weren't like an onslaught of 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 uh, you know investment funds that were set up and, and investment vehicles. And um, I was like, I don't want to meet with these guys. Like they just want me to buy catalog, and I, that just sounds like the most soulless job of all time. Like I'm a creative. And Rich Christina, who's who, who introduced me to them, was like, no, 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 you should go meet with them. They're, they want to do something differently. And I was like, okay. So I went and met with them, and, um, and they were basically like, we've done diligence for the last year, and we, we don't want to be an asset vehicle. We don't just want to buy catalogs. We want to start the next great independent music company, and we're looking for someone creative to lead that. We were told to speak with you, that you want to do something like this. Um, and I said, okay, well, I do, but I don't buy catalogs. I build catalogs. And, but I'm down to learn, like, what are you guys thinking? And they kind of laid out their vision, and I was interested in it. And I basically told them how I would do it differently. And after about three, four months of just kind of getting to know each other, they were like, can we come to L.A. And, um, and sit in a room and try to sketch out a company? And it was Grammy Weekend 2020. Now, I don't know if you guys remember Grammy yeah, Weekend 2020. <laughs> That's a, bad, that's but, a tough weekend. That's but, literally but the Deborah Dugan thing yeah. had just happened with the Recording yeah. Academy, and uh, Kobe Bryant died. Yeah, uh, it was a pretty stressful ten days. So I wasn't expecting much from this meeting, but I went into it, and basically, uh, ten hours later, came out, shook hands, and they basically were like, "I said I don't know anything about buying catalogs. The part of publishing, I don't know. I didn't go to school for that. I went to Interscope Records University." I didn't go to Wharton or didn't have my MBA. I don't know. This is not my world. And they're like, we're going to surround you with the smartest people in the world. We don't know what you do. How do you write a song? How do you decide if you're going to sign another songwriter? Like, and, and like, what's your process? And I was like, oh, my process. Like, um, how do I articulate that? So like, we kind of exchanged these, these ideals and like these plans and decided we were going to build a company from scratch that was both catalog and signing. That was both that and how I would apply the way I would creatively approach signing somebody to catalog, and that was basically how we decided to start Seeker, and shook hands, and it was February first, and went to New York to take a bunch of meetings, and then six weeks later, we were all locked in our living rooms. And uh, I mean, that time for getting <laughs> locked in your living room, I signed a lot of writers during quarantine. Some that uh, I I had writers that literally were signed in quarantine and are no longer w- 
with the publishing company yep. in quarantine. Like, yeah. It was stressful I, all around. I refused to sign writers during quarantine. Yeah, well, I also... That was, like, that, that was actually... The, that, that was, was the weirdest... That was the weirdest... So, I don't know if that... Like, I will say this. I also found people who I ended up having... Sure. Amazing relationship, creative relationships that were primarily based on Zoom. Yeah, that were because I didn't know how long that was going to last, and right. that, and that skill set has turned them into excellent writers. No, no, I, of it. So it's I, like, I, I'm not knocking it whatsoever. Yeah. I just know that when when March 13th or whatever came, yeah, and the next week I, it was a Friday, and the next week I had a phone call with with what became my board of directors, yeah. and I was like, "What are we doing? Is like the is like what are we doing?" Right. They're like. Um, like keep going, build, learn. You know they surround. They introduced me to former CFOs of of major publishing companies who had gone through sales to other publishing companies. Like literally sat there and I started picking up the phone and calling every lawyer, every manager, every business manager I know, and basically saying, "Hey, I'm going to be acquiring catalogs. This is the company that I'm building. This is what we're going to do differently from everybody else. And next time you have something that comes your way, just think about us." And all of a sudden, opportunities started coming, and they kept coming and started picking up. Yeah. And what my my shareholders had said to me that you know people are going to be off the road. People aren't going to know what to do. They're not going to know how to put music out. They're not going to know how to make money in the same way they did. There's going to be an increase in catalog sales now. And oh boy, were they right. And um, the other thing was, I had people have been pitching me writers like as, as they normally do, and I had tried to get to know them over Zoom. It's just not my brand. It's just not how I do it. Like I like sitting sitting in the room with them, or like spending a day with them, or putting them in with my friends, or you know, just yeah, you, asking them questions test, that have nothing yeah. to do with music. Yeah. Like, do I actually like you and want to work with you? And do I feel like I can offer you? Can I, maybe you want to, maybe I want to sign you, but maybe I don't have anything to offer you. Like, I'm not the right mentor for you. And there's a lot of that that goes into it. And I just, I tried, I went down the line, pretty far down the line a couple times in the summer of 2020 and pulled back like, I just don't know. Yeah. And if this is going to be the first time I sign a frontline writer to this company with these shareholders who don't understand really the frontline side of the business. <clears throat> they understand catalog as an asset class, but they don't understand, you know, this kind of like risk, roll the dice, gut instinct feeling about an up-and-coming songwriter. And I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong because I didn't I wasn't able to run the process that I would normally run. And and um and so I really Yeah, that changes having investors changes I pulled back. the whole thing. I just decided, yeah. you know what, I'm not gonna sign anybody until I'm ready, until I have the ability to to meet people and to get to know people and and to really um and really understand who they are and why they're why they want to be a songwriter, why they you know, their intent, like our writer intent is everything. And like Yeah, I mean Say what you want about pandemics, but they're really good for uh, building skill sets yeah. that you didn't have. Well, you, you <laughs> were, I mean, that was the thing is like everybody handled it differently. Like I, I ended up doing a, a writing during the pand on Zoom where I was being brought in to fix records, mm -hmm. which I liked doing more than starting records from scratch. And I know we spoke in 2020, and, and I remember it was like right after a day where you were like, I did three sessions yesterday in three different time zones, and you were like super jazzed on it. And like you, like you were thriving. You were in your element doing that, right? And for me, I was like, I just can't be on another Zoom. 
Like I'm taking, I'm on Zooms all day long. I don't want to go back on Zoom. I certainly don't want to well, sit staring people, at somebody on mute, singing melodies to yourself and then being like, hey, what did you think of this one? And like trying to like, the beat is kind of off. You're like, you're kind of, you're audio movers, but is it like really on? And like, you're, you're, it, it was just so complicated. And I just, it just, it just wasn't inspiring to me. So I really, other than like fixing records, like I remember Danger calling me and being like, will you come in and, and work with Haley Kiyoko and, and help finish this record? And I went on and, rewrote, you know, a lot of the songs with her. Yeah, on the then album. there was a purpose. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, so Seeker starts, you have both catalog acquisitions and frontline well, not, business not, sort of like. Not frontline yet. Not yet. The idea was happening. The idea was to not differentiate between the two. Right. The idea is we're starting a publishing company. Sometimes we buy catalogs. Sometimes we build catalogs. Okay, so fast we're, forward we're not, to. We're not a fund. Fast forward to now. Yeah, yeah. What's your title? President of Seeker? CEO. CEO. Okay. Founder, CEO. Founder, CEO. Okay. So the CEO of Seeker mm. has now acquired classic catalogs and some really relevant pop catalogs. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not looking at notes, so forgive me, but you know, Christopher Cross. Yep. Sailing. Yeah. Um, I'm not paying you for that, by the way. No, it's okay. It's fine. I'm just putting that on the table. Like, don't yeah, yeah, come no, after me. No, okay, the answer no. is like this. No, don't worry about this it. This episode's still coming out. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. He's a hundred percent writer on it, and we own the cat. So you're yeah. fine. You're good. Right. <laughs> so for our lawyers who are listening to this, yeah, no, you're good. Debate, it's cool. Uh, gratis, gratis license. Uh, Evan Bogart, 2020. Yeah. It was like one note. Yeah. yeah. Sit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you knew what I was saying. It's like guess, okay. Uh, so Christopher Cross. Uh, which during quarantine, I probably didn't listen to anything. Uh, I probably listened to Yacht Rock more than anything amazing, else. So like, Christopher amazing. Cross had yeah. a big part of my quarantine. Yeah. Um, John Bellion. Yeah. What? What? That must have been a crazy um, situation. That was great. He's and he's awesome. Oh, he's the best. The best. Um. And who, there was another. There was another one that was really significant. That was we just did. Was, we just announced we did um, Charlotte Caffey from the Go Go's. Oh, from the yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Who who wrote? We got the beat. Yeah, obviously, hundred yeah. percent, which yeah, is crazy. pretty pretty awesome. I mean, she's also one of the best people I've ever met in my life. So day. I mean, you know, you, these are uh, three different artists from four different decades yeah. of success. Yeah, I mean, there's and so many. I mean, we have stuff. My deal with my, my shareholders from the beginning was I know from the previous years where I cut down my writing and only worked on things that I love, that I only truly find success working on things that I actually love, want to work on, right? Some writers wake up and they can go write a hit for anybody and they can just have success doing whatever. That's fine. Some writers wake up and they just have, they have this emotion. They have to get out of them. Yeah. Like I've never been that either, right? But for me, I can't me, imagine you, do you know what waking like, up and being like, like I, have to get, <laughs> I just have to get this out of it me. Just That's not, never been me, but there are some songwriters that have been very successful totally doing are. it, right? Okay. It's definitely not And you. then there's yeah. some songwriters who wake up and it's a nine to five and they go, I'm going to go write great songs today, right? Yeah. Um, for me, it was actually it was in, it was this goes all the way back to 2010. I was I was coming off of a very successful run in the late single digit 2000s, oh. yeah. and it was right before hot 2011, which became like Hot Shell Ray and then MKTO and all that stuff. It was 2010, and it was just ice cold. 
I couldn't get anything cut. Yeah. And I went to see Barbara Kane. Yeah. And Barbara was like, well, what are you working on? And I said, oh, I just went to go to this so-and-so's camp last week in Nashville. You probably figure out who that is. And she said, do you even like her? And I was like, no, I mean, not really, but everybody else was going. And she's like, why are you doing that? I was like, I don't know, just like because everybody's working on right. it and like, you know, who knows? And she's like, what you bring to sessions is fun. What you bring to sessions is your energy. That's Evan Bogart's brand. Like, how can you do that when you don't enjoy what you're doing? You have to enjoy it to bring your brand to the session. Only do the stuff that you're having fun doing, and then you can bring your full self to the session, which I mostly did which became Hot Show Tonight Tonight, which is like basically the embodiment, embodiment of me and Lindy acting like idiots in the yeah. studio. And, um, and sh- saying weird words and shouting out Zach Galifianakis in a verse, right? So like, um, but, and MKTO's whole album was just being stupid, yeah. right? And having fun, right? And I think that that led to this whole, open up this, Barbara's you know, advice led to this whole other thing of a success. But fast forward to when I'm talking to my shareholders and I'm like, I only want to buy songs that I wish I wrote or projects that I wish I worked on and I didn't have a chance to, either before my time or I just didn't get a chance to during my time. I'm gonna pass on everything else. I don't care if it sounds completely counterproductive, counterintuitive, counter everything. It only works if I'm creatively invested. I must invest with my heart and then I can invest with your money. Otherwise it will not work. And they said, deal. Which was, that was it, that was the selling point. When I knew that I could only buy catalogs that I loved and I would never even bring it to them, they wouldn't even know about it unless I already loved it first, second, had a strategy for how I uniquely or my team uniquely could actually do something with it. Yeah. So I knew it was right for Seeker. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Then at that point... I bring it to my board and say, I would like to go and acquire this catalog. It's the same way I would do it from a songwriter, right? I would be like, do I love their music? And I'm going to spend time with them. Do I feel like I could be the right mentor to them? It's the same approach, right? It just took the same approach that I take to songwriting or choosing sessions, and I applied it to choosing catalogs, right? 
And so every, every catalog we bought, every catalog we've acquired, every songwriter we've signed, every artist we've signed to our label, but every catalog we've acquired has been governed by that rule first and foremost. And now I have an entire creative team. So I, first, do I love it? Second, whole creative team, let's all decide whether we have a strategy for this or not. Because if my sync team comes back and says, we don't know what to do with this, or my marketing team comes back and goes, I have no idea how to do this. I, I don't even like it. Like, I take that into consideration. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's not just me anymore. So, but um, the passion part, it has to, pass, has to pass my test of, do I love that? And thankfully, I love all different types of genres. So it's not like I'm like only buying one genre. But yeah, I mean, so if you were from to our say contemporaries, why, yeah. right? Mozella, Sam Waters, John Bellion, John Ryan, Ruth Ann Cunningham, right? Like a, a few other ones which haven't been announced yet, but will be. Um, and then Christopher Cross, Charlotte Caffey, right? Like older, older artists, you know, run the jewels, um, which yeah, I think is. Cool. Not only inspiring to me, and that I love them, and I've been listening to, but also like them. Since some of, some of the things you purchase in catalog acquisitions are about, especially when you're developing a company, is yeah. about the brand of it, and you you can't get anything more credible than Run the Jewels. Well, you think about it. So things. we we on the master side, we have Christopher Cross and Run the Jewels, right? Yeah. So Secret Music as a label, as a catalog yeah. label, I'll just call it a label because I hate saying catalog yeah. frontline, but is. Christopher Cross and Run the Jewels. Yeah, it's, so cool. it's a pretty cool record label. Yeah. That's the that's the Seeker Records label, and then we have a frontline label which is called Music is Fun. Yeah, because we just want to remind people. Yeah, sometimes people forget. Yeah, and so our label is actually called Music is Fun, and that's where we sign new artists, yeah. um, and have a whole branding, merch, the whole thing. When we were looking at because Unknown Music is my publishing company, and the whole idea of first of all the fact that it was available was kind of interesting. That is shocking, it, you know. But yeah. the idea we you know going down this thing was like the idea of finding something that actually represents the idea of discovery. Yeah, is is complicated and seeker as yeah. a title. Well, that was yeah, music was being why. you know. Music is fun. These are this. It's real. It's yeah, like yeah. it gives it an authenticity that, that and that and that's what it, and that's what it's always it brings been about. Evan Bogart into it. So yeah. it's not it's not anybody's thing for sure. And, um, and 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 the thing is though, like I've had full on conversations with songwriters. I always want to know, as I'm sure you would, when somebody wants to sell their catalog. I first thing I want to know is why. Right. It's important to me. I have like a a list that's like seeker family values, right? And like it's like all of these things that I feel like I bring my my values, my my ethics, yeah, to how we do this differently. Like I would ne- in the same same way as in a frontline deal, I would never offer someone a deal I wouldn't sign myself. And obviously, right. that's you know um, uh, depends on where they are in their career. Obviously, from an advanced size of things, but as far as term wise goes, like if I'm offering someone a deal, it's something that I would feel comfortable signing at their point in their career or in general. Um, the same thing on the catalog side. Like I don't ever want to buy a catalog from someone who feels like they're like, well, everybody else is selling, so I should sell. Or like my manager said I should do it. Or my lawyer said I should do it. Like totally. it's important to me. I want to hear from them why they want to sell. Because if they're like, I want to take some money off the table and diversify my, my funds. I want to reinvest in things. I want to get into real estate. I actually want to start my own publishing company and sign writers. Like, I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. Like, what do you need? Like, let's figure it out, right? Um, sometimes, song, sometimes people who have sold catalogs have been like, well, I want to sell because I want to do this, but I also, like, I, they're my babies. And like, 
dude, I get it, yeah. right? Like, I trust me, I get that. And so I say to them, well, why don't you hold on to the performance? Or why don't you hold on to the um, performance on the, the five songs that, that mean matter. the most to you? Yeah. Or if you're an artist and a songwriter, why don't you don't sell your artist songs? Just sell us the songs you wrote for other people. You keep the artist songs. You know, whatever, the, whatever that is, right? Yeah. And so, or let's do 50, let's sell, sell 50%. You keep the other 50%. If you ever want to sell the other 50%, you'll come to us, but yeah. let's, we'll be partners. Like, so, and I've even talked people out of selling, yeah. which is like, I, find me another one of these companies who literally is talking people out of selling their catalog to them because I just think they're doing it for the wrong reasons or they want some or an astronomical number and the interest rates are high and I tell them, wait until the interest rates drop again. It's trying to, talking about the importance of mentorship in this business is it runs deep. And you saying that there are so few mentors in this business is something that a lot of people who are mentors are saying, partly because you see how many people need it and how little time there is to give it to everybody. Yeah. And when you have the opportunity to actually say, hey, this is how you're getting screwed. And this is how you're or this is how you're not getting screwed, but more importantly, understand the business. Yeah. Let me teach you about this so that way you can survive as a songwriter or a publisher yeah. or a lawyer or a manager. But if you are up and coming and you have somebody you can ask and say, I don't know, or I think I know this, and listen, I I say this a lot where I I've, if I've learned one thing from this podcast. I used to think it was learning how to age gracefully. <laughs> and what I've learned from it in a lot of ways is that aging gracefully is on all sides of the business. Yeah, It's not just right. the mentor. Right. It's also the mentee. And learning to listen to, if you have an opportunity to talk to Evan Bogart about your catalog acquisition and Evan Bogart says, why are you doing this? And you don't have an answer for it. You can learn from that moment. Listen Learn how to age gracefully, both in, in all the parts of your career, because that's it, like it, it's a community of people aging gracefully. We can move a lot, you know. We can get things done. And it's a lot harder to do it when it's like, well, they'll they'll lead the way either from either direction. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's a really good point. I mean, the other thing about that is, is like, intent is everything. Yeah, I think, in, I think, I think being intentional with what you do, especially in this business, you can. You can make the wrong move really quickly if you're doing it for the wrong reason. Totally. And 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 I think also like, you know, if I could give advice in the in the realm of asking people why or their intent behind things is, you know, if you have a team of people and they ask you to do something or they recommend you to do something, ask them why. I think a lot of people just mm-hmm. don't do that. And I think it's funny when you ask people why. How many times they actually don't have an answer? Yeah, my this is you know I know we don't have that much more time, but there was uh, when people talk about publishing contracts, the first thing people look for is the word MDRC, and they're like, I don't want that in the contract, and they'll you know, well, why don't you want it in the contract? Nobody wants it in a contract. It's not cool to do. I'll just to take, you know, I, I just want to just recruitment based, recruitment based. And and my thing often with these people is um, this is this is could be the biggest coup that the publishing company companies have done is convince or managers or whoever to convince writers 
to not look at MDRCs in an era when people are releasing a lot of music and no music is making money. Yeah, yeah. Very well, few that, songs can actually cause recruitment. Uh, it's as also, a whole. It's so also it's like, because it's the way that MDRC has been defined. Sure, exactly. But that's fair. Then say like, well, I don't and, want MDRC. And MDRC a, that's that's defined to like physical sales only on three major labels, and the penny rate has to be confirmed. Yeah, yeah. that's onerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, who says MDRCs have to be con- exactly? That? There are ways to. I, I'm I'm just saying that when everyone says I want a deal that just says recruitment. Yeah. And I won't look at what the word MDRC says. You'd be surprised how many of that those clauses are the ones that sure. will help you through your your terms. Yeah. yeah. And you just X them out and he won't even talk about it because the thing is a publisher, you can't you don't know what you're doing. I feel like you can't even put MDR you can't even have that conversation because you're most lawyers will at this point are just so MDRC averse that the minute MDRC is in there, you're non competitive. Even if your MDRC yeah. was like, you could put out anything on any pl- platform of all, it doesn't matter how much percentage you have of it and blah, blah, so blah. Stupid. That's, it's just the term MDRC is such a bad ter- a bad word now. That, it's so that stupid. It, it, it makes, genuine, you non, makes you non-competitive. Yeah, that's, that's stupid for all lawyers who say that and managers who won't look at it because that's your opportunity right now to move through terms faster, often. Just as much or more than somebody. Okay, somebody who can do recruitment is, base it, only. It, it, is, you can be it trapped is hard. Forever. It is hard to, to to collect money. It takes a long time to. Collect it takes a long money. time to collect money. It takes a long time to. Anyway, this is totally. There's a whole sad. other conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, it's obviously really exciting to see your progression as always, and it's like you know. Uh, I interviewed other people that season. Where if I had a conversation right now, it would be. Either them winding down their career, or it would have been like rocket ships doing the same thing. Like same, same in that same group. You know, Benny Blanco wasn't an artist yet, and yeah, uh, you sure. know, Jay Cash hadn't had it this last run. You know that uh, just that whole season where people who um, some people did did their own whatever their journey is. And the Evan Bogart journey has just always been really exciting. Partly because you know, even though we're about the same age, because I came in as your band and you being a, a booking agent. Yeah, weird. Which is so weird. <laughs> but you being my booking agent at the time and talking to you and Tedder. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. But if it wasn't for you guys saying, "Hey, you should write for other people," yeah. I don't know if I would have written for other people. And then to see, like, you know. Uh, you know this kind of thing, like oh yeah, oh interesting. I could sign writers. You know, Boardwalk. I'm going to sign some some writers too. You know, I can do this. It's like okay, so it's you know, it's like oh that guy's running a record. I could, I I want to do that too. It's like the fact that we've been able to work on stuff for the Grammys together is yeah. amazing. The fact that we've been able to support each other in our careers is amazing. But uh, I think of you still as this as a mentor and one of those in in so many ways. I think you're a mentor for a lot of people in this business. Um, also, you started this business young. You've seen you've seen it from the Interscope '90s through now, yeah. or early 2000s, late '90s. Yeah. You've been there in this business for a while, and you're very smart, and you are such a good mentor. So I just appreciate you. I always like these times. I love, obviously, you know, uh, what you've done, what you what you're currently doing with Seeker. And I feel like when we do the next update, it'll be like, oh, Seeker is like, 
yeah, you know, everyone will know Seeker and it'll be like, oh, oh. no, this is Evan Boger. Yeah. He works. Thanks, man. For this brand that you've developed, you know? Thanks, man. I think it's, I'm, I'm excited too, and I appreciate that. I mean, we've come a long way together. I, I would like to, I want to point out a couple things just as a full circle from our, from our first episode, which is one, for the first 10 minutes of our, of our episode in season one, we talk about bagels. Mm. And for an entire year following the episode, people would bring me bagels to sessions, which <laughs> If we didn't have, if we hadn't talked about it on the show, it would have been just just straight up anti-Semitic. Um, second, um, we ended that episode talking about the fact that um, that um, we uh, we talked about the fact that so many writers didn't exist at that point that that existed when we first started writing. And that most of us would be gone in five years or six years or seven years. But you, me, and Joe are sitting right here, which I just think is amazing. And a lot of our friend group has, is still here that was, that was back then too. So I think um, we've all bucked that trend, which I, th- I think is very uh, inspiring in that regard. Right, like we're all here. We've all evolved in different. Benny, everybody's evolved in different ways. You, right? Like everybody's doing extensions of what they were doing back then. And at the core of it, they're still creators. They're still music creators. They're still passionate about songwriting and songwriters. And yet, they've evolved and built these businesses and these lives out of it instead of disappearing, which was the trend that we had seen when we when we recorded this first episode back then. Was all these people we grew up wanting to be as songwriters who just weren't in the game anymore and yeah. didn't know how to evolve and didn't know how to adapt. And so I, kudos to our generation Amen. <laughs> for that, Yeah, Amen. Which, I, which I think is, was interesting. Um, but yeah, man, I'm excited about Seeker. I'm excited about my new journey as a writer, doing the things I'm doing and, and um, being able to give back to the community in different ways. So yeah. thanks for having me on. Yeah. Love you, man. Love you too. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off.